Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm glad that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here on That's Truth. Again, I say join us, not just that you are listening, but that you will interact with us and send in your questions. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, ready to answer your questions, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be home, and thank you for participating in the program. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.33. We've still got just about 90 minutes in this episode, and so we are going to jump right into the questions that we didn't get to last week, and then as we time permits, we have some new material for you. Pastor, a question that had come in a couple of weeks ago that we didn't get to, uh, and to pick up, start out this evening's episode. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. What are the crucibles of sin? Yeah, I finally investigated uh, what this has a reference to, because normally when we would use the expression uh, crucible, crucible is a container in which you would, like you put it under fire. So you always have the crucible of, of, of trials where you're going through difficulty, difficulties. Uh, I discovered um, by investigating this that this really has to do with the fact that sin carries with it consequences. So when you talk the crucible of of, um, of sin. It, it's basically saying that uh, you don't never get away with sin, basically, and it's like the, what we believe in, um, what you sow, you're going to reap. Okay. So sin always has consequences, and in, just like a crucible is used to create heat and to create pain, uh, it is really talking about the pain that comes through sin and the consequences that come through sin. Um, so that's what is re- referring to. One of the... Um, studies that I saw was on Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to uh, 32, where um, that was the description that was used, and what he was talking about, uh, the the consequences of, of um, going away from God and the, and the results of going away from God, and the point that he was making where that you never really get away from God, um, and uh, you're going to reap what you, you sow, and the fact is that God doesn't always even prevent the believer from suffering consequences. So that's the whole idea behind it. The crucible of sin has to do with the consequences that come with sin. And it's a biblical idea. Yes, a biblical concept. It's the same idea of what you saw you're going to reap. And I think, generally speaking, with very few exceptions, even believers, when we, we sin, uh, it is some things that God might withhold from us and keep us from. But uh, a Christian that drinks alcohol is still going to get sclerosis of the liver. 
uh, a Christian that abuses um, his body is going to have the impact of that on his body. It doesn't mean because he's a Christian, God protects him. Um, but I thought it was an interesting statement. Never heard it before. I've always heard the crucible of trials, but to talk about the crucible of sin, um, it was well, well worth investigating how that is used. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Next question, is God in the Bible sexist? Well, again, I I am not too sure how you define sexism. And what I mean by that is um, I suppose the person is suggesting that um, God seemed to favor the male gender and God gives the male gender leadership roles, etc., etc. How do you you define that? If you... Because biblically, uh, it is very, very clear that on the level of equality, the level of dignity and value, men and women are equal. The Bible makes that quite clear. It also makes it very clear from the book of Genesis that men and women were to live in a partnership where a woman plays a support role and the man plays a leadership role. Now, uh, again, if you consider that to be sexist, well, it would be sexist from your interpretation. But again, who defines sexism? Uh, God has made it very, very clear that uh, he made them male and female. And while they are equal on the level of, of dignity and value, God has set order in which uh, they should exist. For example, within the home, God has made the man the head, the woman is there as the support system, and she's also there to act as a rule of submission. Uh, In the church, God has selected men to to lead in the church, and women can play different roles. I would even say this, Nathan, it's very, very seem obvious to me that God really intended that even within government, Generally speaking, God expected men to lead in government. And I think you can you can pretty much come to that conclusion from looking at the Old Testament in terms of leaders. But there were always some exception where a woman filled the role like Deborah, uh, filled the role, etc. So it, while it is a general principle uh, when it comes to leadership in terms of government, um, uh, I believe with all my heart that men were designed to fulfill this role. But men have been so deficient in, 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 in terms of what they're supposed to be doing, whether it be in the home or in the church or even within government, that women normally fill the vacuum where there's a leadership leadership void. And that's what's been happening again and again. But God is not sexist. And again, uh, we got to understand that God is sovereign. If God has set a hierarchy uh, where he expects different roles, what does man, to my mind, is completely arrogant to charge God with sexism because he's, he's created a point where men are supposed to be leaders in the home and, um, and uh, in the church. So the reason why I can't, I mean, is sexist by the sense how the feminists would define it because they think that there should be this level of equality and we should have an egalitarian society and there should be no distinction between male and female. But a female can never be a male, a male can never be a female. That's the distinction God has made. But And I think it is arrogant for anybody to, to make that kind of a charge. I think it is um, part of the indication of the level of rebellion we have against God and against Scripture, that people can make such statements. But the Bible is very, very clear that um, God is sovereign and God has set up an order and and God expects a hierarchy and God has decided what role different individuals should play and we should live within those roles in order to honor God. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor David Murphy is the individual answering your questions. 
I'm sure that you probably have had a question come to your mind sometime this week. Maybe it was a coworker asked you something. Maybe it was a sign along the side of the road and you thought, you know, is that right? Is that what the Bible teaches? What does the Bible teach on that particular topic? What should be my Christian response to the upcoming carnival holidays and the festivities associated with that? No matter what your question, we are excited to hear it. You can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. If you don't want to speak live on the air, I completely understand, and we still welcome your questions and look forward to your interaction. You can do it via WhatsApp or text message. And if you want to remain completely anonymous, you don't even want uh, the area code or the country that your question comes from mentioned, just at the beginning of your question, just put anonymous, and we will respect that completely. In fact, when it comes through that way, uh, the call screener who passes it on to me doesn't even mention the information, just says an anonymous question. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. This is a safe place for you to ask your questions. We're not here to mock you, belittle you, argue with you. We're here to hear your question and then answer it from Scripture and from a biblical worldview. You say, why do we answer our questions from a biblical worldview? Why do we always go back to Scripture? Pastor, what are your thoughts there? Why are we always going back to Scripture? Isn't Scripture outdated? Well, um, it might be outdated for some people, but uh, those of us who are believers and who take uh, God seriously, uh, we are convinced, totally convinced, that the Bible is God's Word. Um, there's so, there are re- very good valid reasons that we can give for that. But uh, there's no other um, standard by which you can judge right or wrong, or you can establish what practices are acceptable or not acceptable. The, when you go away from, you must have a standard. And part of the problem why society is so declined and why they're having so many issues, like in, in, in Antigua, now the, the buggery laws are going to be changed, uh, the, the laws of abortion, of, 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 all of that is as a result of people moving away from the word. Uh, a lot of these things were established uh, when we were uh, colonies, but the reason why they were established is because those people that were leading were people who were, um, I would say, committed to Christian principles. They were governed by biblical principles. It's all, all the Western world that was, all the, all the governments of the Western world, when they first were founded, it was the Bible that became the standard of making laws, especially when it came to issues of morality. Now, the, the problem today is that those who are now our leaders have gone away from biblical truth, and they're no, they're no longer held to biblical truth. And consequently, you're going to have a lot of these changes. Once you do away with the buggery laws, uh, and once you make a homosexuality normal, you cannot avoid, in the way the world is going, you're going to have uh, same-sex marriages. The only way to solve those kind of problems, Nathan, is to define in the Constitution what is a man, what is a woman, what is, a, what is marriage, what is, what is proper um, um, sexual or, or orientation. If those were defined within the Constitution, 
then you would have a basis to deal with these issues. But because those are not defined, because people just only accepted those things, that it was wrong for a man to sleep with a man, except it was a general... It's, today, the majority of people still feel that, 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 that that's abnormal. And uh, it is sin. There's no question about it. It's evil. It's wicked. It's ungodly. It's an abomination. But again, if you've got people who are in leader, who, who I hear the problem, Nathan, I have. Some of these people in Parliament are people who would tell you that they're Christians, that they hold to the Bible. Uh, and that's the difficulty I have. You don't have Christian statesmen like Wilberforce and Granville Sharp and others like who were able to turn back uh, slavery. These are men who held the biblical principles. They were in Parliament. They were, they were politicians. But they carried their Christian faith into Parliament, and they argued against evil on the basis of biblical principles. The problem, we don't have that today. And whether it be in America or whether it be uh, here in Antigua or in Barbados, where I'm from, uh, that's the problem. We don't have any real Christian statesmen who hold the biblical principles within the, the Parliament. Uh, that's not the, the Bible is not the standard that is used to help to, to guide the nation in terms of making moral decisions. And uh, I don't see how we'll turn this back until we have a revival and we have some very serious people who are godly men and women who are willing to put their political careers on the line in order to hold the biblical principles. Uh, it will take men of courage to do that, but we don't have many. As you were giving that answer, there's a question that came in. Good night, Pastor Murphy. What's your take on the unconstitutional of the buggery laws here that was overturned by the high court? Well, my view and every Christian view should be that uh, sodomy is evil, it's ungodly. A nation would be judged for it. Uh, when you permit sodomy, and, and by the way, you know, we've done a program on this already. Most homosexuals are not going to live beyond 50. They, 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 they are museums of diseases, and that's a reality. Uh, and I, I don't like the idea of, of uh, people who are homosexuals involved in two things. I don't want them involved in anything to do with food. I don't want to involve with children. Right? Those are two main areas I think that homosexuals stay out of because what they do is nasty. And if you know anything, if you've read anything about it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. I would recommend a book for you to read called The Unhappy Gay by Tim LaHaye. I would suggest you purchase it. And uh, he did a thorough investigation on this matter, and he has medical doctors telling you what, what, what's really involved in this kind of a, uh, atrocious, evil, ungodly, unnatural, uh, perverted practices. So I'm, I'm against it. Um, and I don't know if there's any way that you can, you can turn back the tide. Again, I think the only way to deal with that is within the Constitution, define uh, what is acceptable sex and what? Uh, but here's another problem: any time you have to do with sexual issues, people think that's private. That's private, and of course, the Constitution respects privacy. But that's why I say there are some things. So if I murder somebody in private, I mean, if it's privacy, is that what about that? You know, uh, I just think that the main problem is that we have drifted away from biblical truth. We don't have any Christian statement who are in in positions who are going to take biblical principles and bring to bear on the conscience of the people. And as a result of that, I think we've gone the way of the West, and all of these major um, first world countries are now um, putting so much pressure on third world nations to adapt their immoral ways. And only the African nations, as far as I understand, are able to stand up to it because they have the resources and don't need the handout uh, that these people use as a, a, a stick to put people in line in terms of their moral agenda. 
Next question, Pastor, does it make sense to pray if God is going to allow what he wants to happen anyways? For example, the COVID-19 pandemic and the amount of deaths. Well, look, you can't, the the COVID uh, pandemic really, in truth and fact, is a man-made disaster. Uh, I think um, I am fairly convinced from what I have seen and heard that I really believe it came out of the lab um, in Wuhan, in China. I'm not saying the Chinese did it deliberately, but there's no question that uh, somehow, whether accidentally or deliberately, it escaped. All of this could have been prevented. It's very, very clear it could have been prevented. The Chinese stopped the people from Wuhan going to different parts of China, but opened Wuhan to the, the, to the world, so that the world came into China, caught the disease, and went back to their homes and gave it. So it, I don't know if it's a, a strategy of the communist regime. I don't know. But I do not trust communists because they don't believe in any god, and the only morality they know is the morality of the state. So whatever they do that benefits the state is moral. So they can lie to you, they can murder somebody, they can do something, and, and uh, it's not wrong, it's not evil, there's no compunction of conscience because there's no element of morality in terms of what morality is judged simply by what's good for the state. But I am convinced it's a man-made activity that was done. Uh, I don't see how you can blame God for this. Um, uh, I think God allowed it. And I think that there are many other things that he's going to allow down the line because we are living in a world that has forsaken God, forgotten God, has put God in the periphery of their life, no longer want God at the center, uh, see God as some kind of a spiritual that when they're in need, they cry out to God for help, but have no interest in, in God on a daily, everyday basis. You look at the moral state of the world, The if you take just abortion, for example, which is people making so much thing about, imagine that since 1973, America alone has killed 65 million babies. This is not the global <laughs> number I'm talking about. Now, can a God who sits in heaven and see this kind of evil being practiced by some of the most advanced nations on planet Earth, and they do it without any compunction of conscience, do you not think that he would allow something like this to wake uh, the world up and, uh, uh, and to get our attention? So I, I don't think that you could use COVID as an example of not praying and asking God to, 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 to hold back the COVID. I think we've got to look at the moral state of society, understand we're living with a moral God who's given moral laws for us to obey, and that there are penalties and consequences of immorality and a godless life. Uh, there are consequences. And I feel that part of the consequence is God withholding his hand that can restrain these kind of things and permitting things to happen that should wake us up and bring us back to to him. The churches uh, started to become centers where people were now focusing on uh, because so many people were dying of COVID. Remember that you had the um, the earthquake, I forgot what year you had it, and I'm told that the churches 70, were flooded. 74? Yeah, you had the churches were flooded with people, uh, and there were a lot of people today that co- you might call them earthquake Christians. <laughs> they came to faith because they were shaken to the very foundations of their life. There are things that God allows in this way to shake us up because we're moving very swiftly towards destruction. And uh, unless he does things periodically and allows certain things to happen, we continue on a merry way and we get worse and worse and worse. And God cannot look on evil because he's a holy God. He has somehow to bring consequences to bear upon those who violate his, his moral law. We have a lengthy question that has just come in. Pastor Murphy, how do you discern what to do or what not to do? For example, if you are preparing a sermon and halfway through it, 
you realize that this seems like something you're directing a point to a disagreement you had with a brother in Christ, or someone will hear the sermon or a conversation someone had in confidence with you, how would you proceed? Uh, and it continues on. I don't know if you want yeah, me to. Yeah, let me just quickly say this. You know, it it, it a lot depends uh, on your motive for doing what you're gonna what you're gonna preach on. The other thing is that it might only appear to you that you are not targeting somebody uh, and the message, but your subconscious, you maybe that was the intent, mm-hmm. uh, and then now you're saying, and then it's brought to your memory that uh, maybe this person would view it that I am particularly targeting them. So, I think the the crucial question here is what's your motive, right? What's your motive? Are you sure that you're not preparing this message specifically to target the individual? That's the first thing I would suggest to you that uh, needs to be done. The other thing is that if you're preparing a message and there's something there that you think the person might think you're targeting, it says to me that you haven't been reconciled with that issue. So again, uh, you might need to do some pre-sermon work, and that would be, look, it's clear that this thing is still there. Uh, And maybe you might need to go to the the person and try to clear that up. The other thing I would suggest to you is that um, if you feel that this is the message that the Lord has laid upon your heart, but you still have hesitation that this person might think that you're targeting them, go to the person and say to the person, look, um, we had a problem some time ago, weeks ago, whatever it is, and I'm going to say something in the message this morning. Uh, I, I want to assure you that I, I don't have that particular you in mind when this, this, this matter is concerned. Um, so would that offend you? Again, I will try to see if the person is mature enough in, in that regard. So I think you need to go to that person and tell them, give them an idea what you're going to do and uh, how it might be perceived by them and try to get permission to them that it's not going to offend them. They understand what you're trying to do. The other thing I would suggest to you is that... Um, the illustration that you're going to use, um, is there a parallel of something going on currently within the society or within the news or within your reading that almost parallels that, that you can use that illustration and say, well, Mr. Uh, John Piper or, or John MacArthur or whoever, uh, use this illustration, and I think this is a really good illustration of, of what I would like to say. Mm-hmm. That way you eliminate it altogether. The other thing is that if you are going to use the illustration uh, between like a man and a woman, change that between a boy and a girl, or between a child and a mom, to get the same truth. You can, you can say this is a hypothetical situation, you know. I'm trying to avoid the person think you're, you're targeting them. But let me make another uh, suggestion here to you. One of the biggest problems if you do counseling, one of the biggest problems is very hard to be preaching if you're doing counseling without somebody thinking that you are spilling the beans and you're sharing something that they shared with you. In part. And here's the reason. Everybody thinks their problem is unique. They don't understand that everybody faces the same problems. So when you have a, if you have a marital problem, take it from me. Most people have had that problem at some point in time. Mm. So it is very difficult when you're dealing with issues uh, and you're counseling, whatever counseling you're doing, that when you're preaching and you're going to use an illustration, there's, take the matter of finance, for example. There are so many marriages that have financial problems, and they're the same problem. There's no budget. Uh, you can use an illustration of something, and a person may think, I just told him that. But I'm saying to you that, uh, so you've got to let people who you're counseling 
understand that sometimes you'll be sitting here and you will think I'm referring to you. But your problem is so common. So let them be aware of that uh, way ahead of time when, if you're doing any kind of counseling because it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact your, your preaching at some point in time. Uh, the other thing is you can get permission to uh, use an illustration that, uh, or situation but not use names. Right, most of the books I read on counseling, they always change it to some John Doe or something, and they explain to you that this is not the real person, but they, they did that to to guard the person uh, who might, in some way, think that the 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 counselor is sharing um, confidential information that ought not to be shared. Pastor, we have Brother Williams on the line calling from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for your call, and go ahead with your question, please. I would like you to if you can explain something for me, please. In Revelation chapter two. Corinthians chapter two. Revelation. Revelation two. Okay. Twenty to twenty-three. All right. Revelation chapter two, verses twenty to twenty-three says, "Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess." to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Well, look, um, I'm trying to, in my mind, the entire chapter of Revelations 2 and 3 is the message to the seven churches. Uh, those seven churches, uh, in addition to being local churches in Asia Minor, they're also representative of the type of churches that would exist throughout uh, church age. In other words, I don't have time to go through it with you here, but if you were to check these seven churches and compare the seven different ages in church history, you'll find that there's a parallel here. Uh, for, you get, for example, you've got the Apostolic Church, and then you've got the, the Church that became the, the Catholic Church. Then you've got the Missionary Church. All of these churches are mentioned in this particular passage. I was trying to identify the one that you have here in verse number 22. But clearly the passage... Tyra, Tyra. Yeah. The, the, clearly the problem here is allowing a, a false teacher... Um, um, in this case called Jezebel. Of course, the fact that the author uses the word Jezebel is intended to be uh, a symbol of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Remember what Jezebel in the Old Testament did? She and her husband Ahab brought Baalism into Israel and caused Israel to go into idolatry. So she becomes a symbol of a woman who uses false teaching and it's in the church. So in this particular church, there is clearly a false woman, a woman, a false teacher claiming to have the gift of teaching or the prophetic gift. And she's teaching heretical teachings within the church. And the church doesn't stop her, doesn't intervene and say, this is wrong, this is not allowed. So our Lord is chiding this church for the fact that they know better. They know what the Word of God teaches on this matter. But here you have a false teacher, a woman in particular, who is introducing this this false doctrine in the church. And nobody uh, has the courage to put an end to it and to perhaps even expel her from the church. Now that happens today as well, uh, by the way, that there are people who allow uh, false teachers to be to teach false doctrine in the church. 
and they seem to either be naive or fearful of taking a decisive uh, decision that this has to stop and uh, it might even require discipline or removal from the church altogether. Um, you have to use the Bible as a standard to make those kind of decisions. A woman or a man that just claims to be a prophet or a teacher or a preacher, because they make that kind of claim or they wear some kind of a gong or they wear some kind of a, a collar, that their authority does not derive from the fact that they make this claim or because they have on these this paraphernalia that makes them think that they are a, a pastor or leader. What is decided is the Word of God has to become the standard by which we decide what's in our church. So whether it be me as a pastor or a deacon or another person in the church, the, the members of the church must use the Word of God as a standard to decide uh, whether these people are of God or not, or whether the teaching of God or not. It cannot be the fact that they just make the claim of authority of themselves that becomes a standard. No, you must take the, the Word of God is the ultimate standard in the church. And the, the pastor must be judged by the Word. The deacons must be judged by the Word. Teachers that come must be judged by the Word. Uh, all that must be done, and the Word is a standard by which we decide truth from error. Without that, the church will fall into what the Bible warns us again and again. Total, total deception. So that our Lord said the day is coming when if it were possible, even the very elect could be deceived. In other words, it's going to become so close that uh, if he did not intervene, even the elect would fall for all of the things that's going on in the church. And that's because we've gone away from the Word of God as a standard by which we judge people. We allow personalities to be the standard or some other means, but we must allow the Word of God to guide us. So this is a warning against uh, a church that's allowing a woman who claims to be a teacher, who is teaching heretical false doctrines, and the church does not take the action to excommunicate her, discipline her, remove her uh, uh, from the church. So, so, Pastor, when the Bible talks about that, he gives he gave her time to repent, and she repents not. Uh, well, he gave the church time to repent, right? It's not, not that, not, if you read it again, um, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that um, woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrament and I gave her space to repent uh, but uh, and her of her and she repented not okay um, opportunity is there right but the church has to make decisions when it comes to those kind of things you just can't leave it without doing it because the, the, the instrument that God uses is the, the church members they have to be vigilant on these kind of matters you could, you, you could see somebody doing something that's uh, not right in a church. You can go and speak to that person, or the pastor can speak to that person, listen, you know, uh, listen, I, we, 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 this is not the way we, this is not what we believe, this is not what we teach, this is an error. Uh, and you can give the person some time. But if they keep doing the same thing again and again, and violating some biblical principle, action is needed. Uh, and that's what our Lord is pointing out here, that uh, given enough time, uh, I do not, we don't know the details of who warned or what was warned, but the fact that the person continues and doesn't repent of the false teaching, it means now that the church has to take action to deal with it. So he writes to the church and is actually holding the church responsible. Why have you not taken action? We've given this woman so much time to repent and to change her way. She hasn't. Why haven't you uh, taken action? So the church has to do that. But there's nothing wrong. I mean, look, there's some young men in tremendous zeal um, and people who do a lot of reading, a lot of stuff. Sometimes they come up with 
so many outlandish ideas. And you've got to look at them as immature, who doesn't fully understand the Bible. And you can bear with them for a while. But after you've instructed them and showed them from the Word of God uh, that what they believe is so clearly against biblical principles, then you can't tolerate the nonsense any longer. You've got to draw the line. And a church must do that, especially when somebody is making claim, in this case, that they're prophet and they're teaching and they're leading the church astray. Uh, some action has to be taken that you can't be left because the damage that would be done in the long term could perhaps even lead to a church split and, um, you know, impressionable minds going away with falsehood. And I have discovered that when somebody embraces falsehood, there's an affinity in the human nature to hold on to falsehood. So truth has so much a greater battle now trying to clean the mind of the falsehood. It's like the cults. The hardest people in the world is to reach are those people who will reach, uh, become cults before we reach them. Because they're so now ingrained and indoctrinated and so embraced as falsehood. It's very, very hard to challenge it because uh, human nature, because it's fallen, has this affinity for evil and for wrongdoing. And that's why it's important to, to reach people first before the cults reach them. But discipline is important in, 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 uh, in the church, and the church has got to understand that it has to take action to deal with these matters and not just sit by and uh, allow these things to go on indefinitely. You know, you've got to give a person time, but again, there comes a point where the time runs out. You can't, can't allow it any longer. Okay, thanks for the explanation. Anyway, have a blessed night. Okay, sir. Thank you for the call, Brother Williams. Thank you for your question. And if you have a question that you would like to ask live on the air, the phone line is now open and available. You can call 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Yeah, I wanted to continue the, the subject we're talking about, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah go Look, I was also going to suggest to the, the person, if you have um, a subject like that, I you could go around it uh, around the right way, and what I mean by that is this: you can decide to preach a series of messages on a book that has to deal with that problem. Don't target it immediately. Begin uh, distant from it, but you're going to come to it, uh, and and that's one of the benefits of what I call expository preaching. Uh, and that is going on a book of the Bible, going to chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because you are going to come to subjects that you want to deal with and you think that people are going to think that you target. But if it flows naturally, it goes from one to the other. Nobody can say, well, the pastor just got up and he just targeted me. The other thing I would also suggest is that what about inviting a speaker? that uh, to deal with the particular subject you're talking about. You don't have to give any details about it, uh, but uh, that might be another way of avoiding the person or a person's thinking that you deliberately got up there and, and, and targeted them. Uh, a visiting speaker uh, to deal with the subject uh, would be looked on in a different way than if you, uh, if you did it yourself. And one last thing has to do with timing. Timing is so very crucial. Um, the thing happened last uh, two years in July. Now it's July again. You know, uh, maybe the memory of that is on your subconscious, really, it's July. and So you've got to be very, very, very careful. The person also realized, wait a minute, I did, this happened in July. Why, why, why now he's in July? He preached January, February, never, but not July. So I think timing is another factor that is involved. But above all, I think it has to do with the maturity of the person. Uh, in the church, if they wear their feelings on their sleeves, uh, they can become easily offended. 
So I think you have to ask yourself the question, are they mature enough to handle this? Uh, because you don't want people to leave the church because they think you're targeting them. Uh, so I would suggest the best thing to do with that, as I pointed out, to go to them, to talk with them. But those are some very practical uh, suggestions that um, I've, I've preached already, by the way, which I felt after I mentioned the illustration, I said, oh my. And I saw the person sitting, not the same person that I was talking about, but I, similar situations. And I had to go afterwards to the person and say, you know what? I know you think I talk to you about this thing, but listen, this is this, this has nothing to do with you, right? But I just in preaching it, I just remember that you had the same problem I, I dealt with. And fortunate for me, uh, they gave me the benefit of the doubt. But uh, that happens; it really, really happens. And I and I find that that's the difficulty of a pastor fulfill, fulfilling the role of pastoring and counseling. Mm. It's a very, very difficult role uh, because, as I said, we all have the same problems. Uh, but that's what I would suggest, uh, sir, and I hope that in some way it would help you. And one last thing it would be this. Do you have peace of mind or does your conscience bother you? Now, remember, God is greater than your conscience and you should not go against your conscience. So I, that would be my final question. If I've done everything else, my last question is, am I at peace about this? I think that would help you uh, to decide. If you're still hesitating, your conscience still bother you, my suggestion would be don't do it. Don't do it. Um, it. There must be a divine reason that you feel this way. God is not giving you the peace about it, so please don't do it. A follow-up question from this individual. I also wanted to ask you, Pastor, for some practical steps to take or some markers to identify when I'm dealing with my own flesh versus worldly influence or the devil and when God desires for us to do something. Thanks in advance for your help. Well, I would say to you that the, the world basically is um, those things that uh, the Bible talks about, the world, the flesh, the devil. The, the flesh is easy. The flesh is your desires, okay? The things within you that you crave, that's your flesh. Uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes are things that you see. That's where the world comes in, right? So you, you can actually know that the things that come through the eye gate, uh, the main, the main um, target uh, is, is going to be the world. The world is going to, and, and the world, by the way, has not to do with the physical world. It has to do with the spirit of the age, the things that people value, uh, the aesthetic things that attract people, the nice house, the nice car, the nice wife, the nice woman, uh, the, the, you know, things that, that appeal to your aesthetic values. Uh, and the world is is the target there, et cetera, et cetera. The devil is going to use both your desires, your flesh, and is going to use the world. Uh, he's the mastermind behind it. And sometimes it's very difficult to differentiate where it is particularly the devil, the world, or the flesh. Uh, these are three enemies that are working in, in concert together. And But the, the mastermind behind all of them, basically, is the infernal uh, devil, who is trying to destroy you. Um, when it talks about the, 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 the flesh, again, it has to do with your lust, your desires. When it talks about your, your the eyes, your aesthetic, the things that you, you attract you, that are beautiful. And when it comes to uh, the pride of life, which is the other one that's mentioned, it has to do with your ambitions. 
so those are three areas that you are going to be tempted in the area of your lust, in the area of your things that are beautiful and attractive, and in the area of your ambition, your goals, etc. Uh, and all I can say to you that I can't say that I know the devil is doing this uh, and therefore look for these signs of the devil. I can't say that. I just know that he uses all of these three different things, the world, the, fle- the, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, uh, to bring you down. And, of course, uh, the appeal to the world as well. But it's very, very hard to, to, to give you markers to say that, that this is how you know it's the devil, this is how you know it's your flesh. It's, not, it's very difficult because all of these strengths are work, are work together and um, your desires can be created, for example, by something you see. Right? Now, why do you see that? Well, it could very well be that you're watching something you shouldn't watch. Now, why are you watching something you shouldn't watch, right? Uh, again, you might be in the, your, your bedroom. Why, why are you in the bedroom watching the, the computer and something you shouldn't watch, right? Because behind it all is your desire to see something salacious. So you see all three, all three of them are working together. So it's very difficult to give you any markers to, to differentiate between other than what I just gave you that you can know when it's the flesh, or you can know when it's your eyes, and you can know when it's your, your ambition. But Satan uses all three of these to um, ruin you and to ruin me and to bring us down. Thank you for your question that you sent in. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.12. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcast. Our next question, why do we celebrate Christmas when the Bible does not support it and more than half of its traditions associated with it are of pagan origins. You know, to be very honest with you, the more I think of that question and reflect on it, uh, it is very, very true that a lot of what we have as part of the, the Christmas celebration, if you, you check it out, whether in an encyclopedia or check it in some kind of a Christian um, um book that these were these these kind of matters uh, there's no question that there are elements that were borrowed out of the pagan practice and brought into the church and uh, we can't deny that so it's, it's, it's a fact of reality um, the reason why we celebrate it I cannot speak for others I can only tell you why we celebrate it and we, we don't have a special service for Christmas by the way um, but in the country I'm from, um, we celebrate it, and we do have a service. Um, and the reason for that is very basic. There are, and I've mentioned this on the radio before, there are three days that people in Barbados will go to church. The worst pagan in Barbados will go to church on these three days. And that is Christmas, uh, Good Friday, and Easter. These are special days. And people in Barbados will go to church on, on, on Christmas at 5 a.m. in the morning. I repeat, most churches in Barbados would have a service at 5 a.m. in the morning unless it has changed since I left. But again, it's a wonderful opportunity to explain the incarnation of Christ, His coming, preaching to people about uh, about our Lord and introducing them to why he came, etc., etc. So we use it as an evangelistic tool to reach the people who would not ordinarily go to church 
other than those three days. So that's that's why we we particularly here in Antigua we don't do it. We don't have a Christmas morning service, and part of that is because I when I came to Antigua I discovered that the Baptist churches uh, were aware of the uh, a lot of things that happened in in, in church history, and uh, one of the factors they felt that it was too close to um, the Catholic teaching and the Catholic practice. And Baptists, as you know, are part of the Protestant movement, uh, and they stood away, stayed away from it, and that's why they don't have it here. Now. And I have not fought against it because I think they're missing an opportunity because every day belongs to the Lord. Uh, so every single day we live, we can serve Him. So because somebody has something on December 25th, that doesn't mean we can't have something on tw- December 25th and celebrate the Lord's coming as we should. Uh, and I don't know if that will change over time, but I am not going to be split a church over an issue like that. It's not worth splitting a church over. But it is a wonderful opportunity uh, to witness to people. That's why we, we would do it. But there's no denying, uh, and I think the Jehovah's Witnesses have used this against the Christian church for a long time. Uh, because when you look at the history of the different things that were added to the church, it lights the Christmas trees and so on and so forth, um, it is very, very clear that it's part of the old pagan practice used to do this some, something similar and the church created something that avoid the pagans going to what the pagans used to go to now let me use an illustration here that might be somewhat parallel to that uh, I think churches in Antigua that take scripture seriously and believe in strong morality and small biblical principles will not be part of the carnival that we have in the Caribbean. Question, no question about that. We're not going down in town and back and all and have groups and walking up and all this kind of thing. That's that's the Bible talks about that not in reveling in the day. Uh, the Bible condemns that kind of a thing. So what happens that some churches rather than allow the temptation of the young people to go to those kind of functions, there are churches that create uh, alternatives uh, for their members. They might go to the beach they might have a time of fun, whatever it is. The church did something like that similar to stop the pagans from going after these pagan festivals. They decided, you know what? We will have a celebration in the church, but we will not celebrate the pagan god. We will celebrate the birth of our Lord, and so on and so forth. So that's why it ended. The intent was good. You can't deny the intent was good. So I think it's a matter of conscience. If your conscience bothers you and you think it's not something you should do, never go against your conscience. My conscience doesn't bother me on this matter. It's one of those areas where you have freedom and liberty uh, to exercise. If I thought I was endorsing paganism, I would not be involved. But I don't believe I'm endorsing paganism. I think I'm celebrating the fact that our Lord came. Uh, Even though we don't know the precise day He came, nonetheless, uh, we choose that day to say, listen, our Lord came. He came to rescue man from sin, and uh, he came to save and to seek the lost, and then to explain what the incarnation is about, and then how you can how you can find faith and trust in Jesus Christ and become a believer. I have no problems about that whatsoever. Another question that has come in: Some women don't know how to truly submit to their husbands, and some men don't know what submission truly is or what it looks like, like when their wives are doing it. How do we remedy this error? Well, the, the only way to remedy it, in, in, like any other subject, is go to the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures for yourself. For example, check what that word submission means. What does it mean to submit? 
Does that mean that the wife is inferior to the person because the, she's given that role of submission? Uh, does that mean that she's, uh, she lacks dignity and value because she has that role of submission? What does submission mean? And quite frankly, submission is a military term in the Greek language of the military term, which means to rank under. That's all it means, rank under. And we must understand that within the Godhead, there's a hierarchy. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very, very clear as a hierarchy. That same hierarchy was created f- when God created man. And the hierarchy was male and female. But the hierarchy was that the man was made first. And Paul argues in the book of Timothy that the fact that God made man first was not an accident. It was a deliberate plan on God's part to show that he is designed by God to be the leader. So the hierarchy that God has created means that now the wife must rank under the man uh, in a submissive role. In other words, he has to lead her in the church. The pastor has to lead the church. In government, the political leaders have to lead the people. That's the hierarchy that God has established. We have to submit to the government. Does that mean the government is superior to us or we don't have dignity? We don't know. But it simply means that <coughs> there must be law and order. We live in a sinful world. But that doesn't mean that the prime minister is greater than me in terms of value or dignity. We're all made in the image of God. But God has created government. God has ordered government according to Romans chapter 13. <coughs> so, in the home, someone has to rule the home. God said the man is the head of the home. The wife works with him as his help me and she's, she ranks under him. <coughs> doesn't mean that he is superior to her. He's more sm- smart than her. He's more intelligent than she is. doesn't mean that one, one bit. <coughs> that God has established uh, this order. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We appreciate <coughs> those who have... And we look forward to answering your questions. You can call and ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Yeah, I wanted to just, I had a, sorry about coughing on, on, the, on the radio, but um, my throat got very dry. <clears throat> I want to say as well, Nathan, that we have to call the church back to biblical principles the feminist movement is trying to uh, get away with all kinds of distinctions between male and female people didn't see where that was headed but the transgender movement came out of the feminist movement because you're trying to remove any kind of distinction between male and female see that's why you go when you violate God's order and I think the church's responsibility is to re-establish the divine order when it comes to government when it comes to the home and when it comes to the family. Uh, so I just think that uh, what you do, you go into the scriptures, you begin to study it with your wife, and uh, you you begin to understand that this role is a role that God has assigned to her, just like God has assigned the role of loving the wife is the primary responsibility of the husband. I've said this. There are two basic fundamental principles that God lays down for the home, and both people are given the responsibility. The, the wife is told that her role is to respect her husband and submit to her husband. The husband's role is to say that he must love his wife and he must love her and care for her and provide for her like he would care and provide his own body. Those are two... Now, it doesn't mean the wife shouldn't love the husband. It doesn't mean there's some, not sometimes when the husband should submit to the, to the wife. But it just means as a general principle, she must be willing to rank under him and allow him to lead. 
when it comes to children, what are children's response? Obey your parents in the Lord. What if parents respond? Don't exasperate your child, you see. God has balanced this whole thing. And all we can do as, as uh, uh, Christians is to get back to biblical standards, get back to biblical roots, and train our people in this, this matter. If I was a government of Antigua, there's not a single person in Antigua that can get married without having premarital counseling. They couldn't do it. I wouldn't, wouldn't give them a license, wouldn't do it. Uh, he said, Pastor, that sounds cool, but you can't drive in Antigua until you go to a test. Yeah. So which is more important? You tell me which is more important. You're not going to quarrel if they tell you what you've got to, you know, you can't uh, drive on the road until you learn the rules of the road. Well, believe me, marriage is far more important than driving. So how do we let people slip into a marriage and we don't let them uh, ponder these things and get proper premarital counseling so that we can save our marriages rather than see them deteriorate? But that's a decision for the politicians. I just think it's a mistake. But we as Christians have got to give up. As far as this matter is concerned, the only answer to it is going to the Bible, look at it with your wife, study it, get a Greek lexicon if you don't have a, a, a Greek lexicon, borrow it, whatever it is. You could Google it and uh, see exactly what the word means, see how it is used in the Bible, and let the Bible inform your mind and inform your practice. Stop listening to people who are not Christians, who have their own agenda that is not biblical whatsoever, and is conditioning your mind and indoctrinating you. Uh, against the biblical standard. As Christians, we obey God rather than man, and the Bible is a standard, no human opinion. Psalm 91, verse 11, is what this next question is based off of. And it says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Is this teaching that every person is assigned a guardian angel? There are some references in the Bible that would seem to indicate that um, children, for example, have some kind of angelic guardianship. Uh, For example, look at Matthew 18 and verse 10. Look at verse 1 and 2 first, and then look at verse 10, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 1 and 2 says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. Skipping down to what verse? Yeah, the reason why I gave you that, Nathan, is to let them understand he's talking about these little children, okay? Uh, now go to verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of of my Father which is in heaven. That's the basis on which people believe that children have guardian angels. Notice that these are not believers, tr- believing children. These are small kids that are there. He takes the children. He's teaching the disciples the principle of um, being a servant and not wanting to be, um, um, you know, take over and, and uh, take rulership. And he's using this little, these little children to teach them this lesson of humility Etc. And then he, he uses that reference <coughs> not to trouble these kids or hurt these kids because the angels in heaven, uh, you're going to give them a conch. That is a verse that uh, people use basically to have the idea that at least there's a guardian angel, at least for children. There's also um, a belief that this guardianship not only is for children but also for continues for believers and adults. Look at uh, Acts 12:15. Acts chapter 12 and verse 15 says, 
And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. Yeah, this is Peter, uh, where Peter was incarcerated. And um, John had been killed. They're concerned that Peter is going to lose his head as well. And they're praying for Peter to be delivered. Now imagine they be, and then when Peter gets delivered and he comes to the door, <laughs> this is a prayer. These are people praying, but they don't have the faith. They seem to believe that he would be delivered. So when he comes now, that's why sometimes God answers your prayer in spite of the fact that you don't have enough faith because they're praying for Peter's delivered. Peter is delivered, and then he comes to the door and they can't believe it is Peter. The same, it's a ghost. It, it's, it's his angels. His angels. That gives you an idea that they believe that clearly an angel is with the believer. That's why they said it's not Peter's himself, but Peter's angel, okay? So again, that's another idea that comes in that that, that uh, people have a guardian. Another one is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Hebrews 1, 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be their heirs of salvation? And it's very, very clear in, in this passage that it would be teaching that those who uh, God knows are going to be saved, for sure we can say that, that they have angels ministering to them uh, to m- make sure that they, they, they travel that road. It seems very, very clear that this specific ministry is to believers, right? Uh, so clearly believers would have some kind of a, a guardian angel in that regard. Another interesting verse, Nathan, is Revelations 19.10. Revelation 19.10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice that the angelic being refused worship, and he says, I'm a fellow minister like you, quite frankly. So clearly, they are engaged, just like believers are engaged in the ministry. One cannot read the book of Corinthians, where Paul says that anybody, a woman praying with her head uncovered, uh, he said, you do it for the sake of the angels. In other words, it might str- we might not understand this, but angels are deeply involved in the church and in the lives of believers. And uh, another verse, uh, Nathan, if you, well, let me use it this way. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Daniel 12, 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of the people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was (coughs) a nation even to that same time and at that time of protecting the nation of Israel the people of Israel right now of course Israel is God's Old Testament people Uh, by parallel it would seem very clearly that God's people the church you also have this protection of angelic beings protecting uh, God's people, the, the ministering spirits. The the other one uh, that would lead you to think similar, and I'm going to use is you have to read this one. Well, let's read it, Daniel 10, 13. <clears throat> Daniel 10, 13 says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, 
But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Yeah, the prince of Persia here is an, uh, uh, a powerful angelic being that is, is signed <coughs> by Satan to the Persian Empire. When Daniel is given his prophecy about the Persian Empire conquering, <clears throat> Daniel prayed, and Daniel did not get an answer for, uh, I think it was two weeks or 12 days, something like that. And Daniel explains uh, through this here that the angels explained to Daniel, look, I, I was coming for the time you prayed, but we are told that the angel of Persia, the prince of withstood the angelic being that was bringing the message to Daniel, right? So clearly, if you have Satan assigning uh, angels to territories like uh, and then we are told that Daniel uh, people have Michael as their prince there's no question about it that if it's assigned to a nation why would it not be assigned to to babies and to, to little children and that's where the idea and the Bible doesn't come out square and say well every baby got a, a guardian angel but it's hard to read uh, Matthew 18 that the angels do see the present that you can't believe that there's some angelic protection and they are going to hold people responsible who abuse and mistreat these kids that is very very clear from the text I do believe that there is angelic protection uh, for children I do believe that there's angelic protection for God's people the only thing I can't say with any indefiniteness is what about the unsafe people? That's the only thing I'm a little bit not sure about. But certainly kids that are not reached the age of accountability, uh, I would believe that they are, uh, God protects them uh, through his angelic uh, host. We have a question that's just come in, Pastor. <clears throat> is there any hope for a 41-year-old woman to get married and have kids? Of course, there's, there's uh, tremendous hope uh, for that. I uh, I listened to a testimony in church on Sunday morning of a young man uh, who was given his testimony because, uh, you know, it was his birthday. And he pointed out that his parents um, tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and never have any children, but he was conceived at 40, right? Uh, so clearly uh, it can happen. I know of a, a, a lady... Her husband was um, working as a uh, pastor in ministry in St. Vincent. Uh, he recently died. His name was uh, Edwards. Um, I know his wife. I think his wife's last child was born when she was 45. Hmm. So, of course, there's hope. Uh, uh, you know. And by the way, we must not limit God. The problem is that we have bought into it that if you get a child above a certain age, the child will not be born healthy and all kind of stuff like that. Um, look, uh, God is well capable. If God has a child for you and uh, God has a husband for you, um, that husband will come. Uh, all I would say to you is that cooperate with God in this venture. Don't stay in your room and ask God to drop one down from heaven. Be where you can meet people. If I'm looking for, if I was a woman or a, a man looking for a wife, and I was having difficulty finding a wife, I would 
going to uh, I would go to conferences where you have a lot of Christians coming together conferences Christian conferences in different islands especially the Baptists have uh, about the two, two, two or three conferences uh, in different islands I would be going to those kind of functions if I couldn't find anything in the, in the church where I was because the pool is too small uh, I certainly would broaden this pool by getting to, to uh, and then there are other churches that are not may not be carry the Baptist label but which are good fundamental churches. Again, uh, I wouldn't have any problem visiting those. Too. Uh, you, you're putting yourself in a place where people can see you, meet you, get to know you, and it's out of uh, that kind of a situation that you may find someone showing interest in you. But staying in your room and locking up your room and praying to God and putting, putting you know, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you pray and ask the Lord, but at the same time, you do your part in being in the place where you can meet good Christian men or good Christian women um, and, and I trust the Lord to lead you to the right one but of course I'm saying to the person who wrote that there's hope very much hope for you uh, you're claiming that you're 41 well somebody got 45 and there are people who have had children even beyond that so there's hope don't give up hope in this matter thank you for to all who have sent in questions this evening Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.35. Still plenty of time for you to send in your question, so uh, go ahead and do that. You can WhatsApp or text it to 268-782-1454, or you can call 268-462-7420. Pastor, can a church stifle someone's ministry? That is a question from a listener. I think it's a good question as well because my answer to that is the affirmative. Of course it can happen. Um, I have known of situations where there were pastors who did not go to Bible school. Uh, there had people who went and had training and I think felt threatened that they did not have either the opportunity to do that and I feel that uh, in those, some of those situations, not all of them, that they stifled the young person and didn't get them involved. Uh, I don't know if it's out of jealousy, uh, out of envy, uh, but clearly uh, that happens. Um, I know of one case that I can refer to where a person was a graduate of Bible school in one of the islands, um, he had pastored, I think, for two or three years, went back to his uh, home church in one of the islands, and he was never used, not even in youth ministry. Uh, I could never figure that out. And I remember uh, for years he would stay in that church and uh, not even given the youth ministry, and they didn't have any youth minister to help out. And I had to tell the person eventually that if you stay here, you become Methuselah. You'll grow a beard and you'll never get anything done. What you need to do is to decide what God has called you to do. You said you, you, you're a pastor. You think God wants you to start a church. S go to start a church. Fortunately, the person listened, and he has a church uh, today. He started a church. The church is growing, and uh, I just spoke to the person very recently. Uh, but again, I felt that uh, in those situations, people were stifled. Uh, I, uh, so I think it's possible that a church stifles a person. I think pastors ought to give young men, if they think they're called to the ministry, opportunities to preach, opportunities to teach. Um, I think that uh, a pastor should not 
I don't know why, well, maybe I'm a little bit different, but I don't see any reason to feel threatened by a young man, to be honest with you. We all go off the scene at some point in time, and we all need somebody that at least the church is in a position where it can either call that person or they don't feel rushed to make a, a, a quick decision in selecting somebody else who's to come. But uh, definitely uh, a pastor, uh, a church can hinder hinder uh, a person and uh, they don't mature, they don't develop. And one of the funniest things, for, what the bad, worst, worst thing about is the frustration of having training, uh, invested your life, coming back, and then there's no one there to even to direct you into how to use your skills and your talents. Uh, and you know what happens to a lot of the pastors, uh, these young men who train, they end up selling insurance, they end up doing something else, and it's an unfortunate loss to the church when that um, resource ought to be tapped into and capitalized and uh, help to further the ministry. Thank you <clears throat> to all who have sent in questions here this evening. We have another one that has just come in. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Regarding angels, is it necessarily wrong? Is it necessarily a wrong thing for a church member or a pastor to consistently speak on seeing angels in the church or in the sky? I've been to a church where a pastor constantly made remarks on seeing angels and have been in conversation with members who say they also saw angels. I stay silent because I prefer not to limit God's work, but sometimes it seems they may use this phrase to gain some form of power in the eyes of those listening. What do you think about this? Well, there's something called psychological influence. And what I mean by that, uh, um, uh, rather than to think that you're part of this uh, insightful, spiritual um, possession, this this kind of insight, you can hear that being uh, spoken and spoken, and then uh, the person will put the pressure on you, did you you see that angel too? I mean, what do you do in a situation that the pastor is telling you every moment you see an angel, and then they come to you and try to ask you, and uh, you almost psychologically are conditioned to respond to him. Uh, Yeah, I, I see it. Right, and you can actually believe you see it when it's not there. So it's actually a psychological element to this whole matter. What I would say to you is that people make those kind of statements because they want to endow themselves with some kind of spiritual authority, and they want to make you think that they have some special connection with God that no other person has, so that you're not supposed to question the authority, you're not supposed to question what they teach, what they believe, whatever it is. That's the danger. And I think if a pastor has to keep saying that he see an angel here and I see an angel there, I, that pastor is very suspect as far as I'm concerned. I think he's, 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 I think he's being superficial. I don't think it is real. Um, very seldom, read your Bible for yourself, very seldom, do even in the, uh, the New Testament and in the writings of Paul, very seldom does Paul make any reference to seeing an angel. Uh, and if the Apostle Paul and Peter and those people that wrote the, the Bible doesn't keep making this kind of reference, not only that, check church history and see some of the great men of faith that um, throughout the history of the church, they don't make any reference to seeing angels, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Their absorption was mainly with Christ and Christ alone and uh, having a knowledge of the Scripture and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't go around barking. I said, an angel over there in the corner, did you see that angel? I just think it is fallacious. I think it is uh, virtually ridiculous. And uh, I think that the person is just doing that uh, to garner some kind of authority. 
so that he's not questioned and he's held on a pedestal that he ought not to be held up to. So I don't, I don't buy it, and I, I, I would um, suggest to you that it's not real, it's not authentic. Um, I don't know if godly pastors I've known over the years, I've never heard them talk about seeing this and seeing that. I've never read Spurgeon saying about seeing that. These are great men of God who God used mightily. I've never heard Wesley talk about seeing these kind of things. I've only seen a lot of the cults, though, talk about an angel coming down and telling them and giving them new revelation and, and showing them things and taking them up to heaven, etc., etc. All of this is bogus as far as I'm concerned. Would you suggest that an individual in a situation like that take a stand? Uh, how do they take a stand? Well, it depends on the church. I mean, if you come to the church, it's very emotional, and a lot of things have been allowed in the church for so long. There's not much you can do in a situation like that, especially people uh, garner that kind of authority and power not, not willy-nilly or overnight. It's something that continues for a long time. And then if it's been going on for such a long time, and then he's been able to put pressure on other people who said they've seen him as well, before you know it, uh, to even question that, he already got support in the church. Um, if it were me, and I was in that situation, I, I would question his integrity, to be very honest with you, I would have reserved about it. Uh, and I think I could reach the point where I can say, you know what, I don't think this person is real, I don't think this person is authentic, and I would probably uh, try to find a church where I feel more comfortable, and who put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis on the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and uh, I, uh, very seldom do you find the emphasis is placed on this angelic ministry. There's a secret ministry that God himself controls, and very seldom do you ever find believers, whether in church history or within the church itself, um, if it does happen, it's very, very seldom. It's not something that is normal. Thank you for the questions that have come in. Here's another one. Yes, the church does stifle its young people. A young teenager wanted to play the keyboard, but she was denied because the pastor's sister was the one who played the keyboard regularly. The teenager then left the church and joined an open Bible church. Things like that happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, the other thing I, I'm a little bit leery about is that there are some pastors who do everything. Okay. They play the piano, they sing, they preach, they do everything, quite frankly. They might even collect the offering. You know. <laughs> uh, I think that if I were in a situation like that, by the way, and my niece, or who is this? His what? His what? His niece? Uh, his sister? Pastor's sister. Yeah. If my sister is playing the piano in the church, and she, regularly she's been doing that for a number of years, they've got a young person in the church now who has some gift and talent who wants to be part of that. You know what I would do? I would sit down with my sister, and I would say, listen, I so much appreciate you, all this work you've done, uh, but we have an opportunity here to, to wean this young girl uh, into into the into the program and the ministry of the church, and she seems to have this gift. So I'm going to suggest that we work with her. Maybe you can do it two Sundays a week. Maybe you can start with look. You do three Sundays. She do one Sunday, and then afterwards we'll do. You do two Sundays, and you do. Uh, she do two Sundays. But the whole thing is that not to squash or squelch, should I say, her desire and her giftedness. Um, I think that's a mistake that, that people people make. And especially when it comes to family, you don't want the church to perceive that a person is doing that because of a position, there's nepotism going on. 
So it's best to get you, your, your, your family, to get other people involved so it doesn't seem as though it's a family church that controls everything. I think that's a mistake that the pastor would have made there. Uh, if I were him and the girl had left, I would try to find out why she left. And then she would have said to me, you know what, Pastor, I really so much wanted to be part of the, the music ministry, but um, I, I wasn't given an opportunity. I would then, even then, uh, sit down and talk to my sister and say, listen, how can we work her into the ministry, how we get her involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's wisdom to do those kind of things. And uh, by the way, you, you always got to be training somebody to replace the person that's there. Sometimes she's sick, so if she's not sick, who's going to play? Sometimes you have special things and the person's on vacation, who's going to play? So get us, if you can get five people in the church who can play the piano, five, let them play. And then after that happens, now you organize with them that so that there's a rotation going on and you're improving and improving and improving. But it's a sad story to hear that she would have left the church because she wasn't at least encouraged to be involved in the music ministry. I had someone share with me a couple of years ago, and that was in the realm of business, but they said... Uh, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Always bring in the new blood, fresh ideas, fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's wisdom that comes with years, but always have a secession plan and be... Yeah, you've got... I think that's one of the problems that the Baptists have faced in the Caribbean. The pastor is there for many, many years, but when he leaves, I can think of churches right now, I can Mm -hmm. think of one big church, in uh, St. Vincent. Uh, they've been looking now for a pastor for oh, quite a while. Uh, the pastor's been sick, and I think he hasn't preached for four years. But again, uh, imagine that you've gone through all of the, your life there. You must realize that you're not going to be there forever. So why haven't you trained a young man? Not that, you know, this is my view on this whole kind of thing, Nathan. When a young man comes back from Bible school, right, and he has nothing to do, uh, if you don't use him, he has to do something. So he's going to end up getting distracted. It doesn't mean because you put him in a position or you ask him to take a It doesn't mean that that is where he will end up. Or it doesn't mean that the church will eventually call him. That's immaterial. But what you want to do is that if the church decides by judging his gifts that that's the person, let them do that. But how would they ever do that? without the person being given an opportunity to, to work with the church in that, that capacity. One illustration I can think about when I first came to um, Antigua, I think within a month I came to Antigua, I got a call back to pastor church in St. Lucia. I just left St. Lucia and came to Antigua. And I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. <laughs> so I told him, yes, I come in. And I had to preach a week of meetings with them. But I, I, I came with a whip. And what I mean by the whip, I, I, I met with the church. I, I, I spoke to them. I said, guys, I can't believe... I was just in St. Lucia, I'm here a month, and now you're calling me back. To, I said, you have a young man in your church that went to Bible school, came back, grad. he's been in your church for over two years, and you haven't used him. I said, you know what I would suggest to you? Let him do the preaching. Give him a year or two years, and then judge. Is this the man I want, we want? Meanwhile, you can still be looking but at least you you have him there. But what's the use of calling me? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm after a month, then to come back and, and ask me if I'm going to leave a church and come back and pastor a church there. But these things happen again and again, and I just can't figure out why you would have a young man go to Bible school, come back, 
and you don't use him with the plan that maybe this is God's man to replace you when you've gone because he's coming to your church. I can't understand why pastors somehow fear that or don't accommodate that or try to to wean the person into the ministry. And that is Again, I will never tell a church, this is the person. I would never tell them. The church has to decide, but at least they're exposed to the ministry of the person. Um, but it's sad that it happens, and I thought it only happened within Baptist circles, but clearly it's outside the Baptist circles from the illustration that this young lady just used. Thank you for the question that you sent in. Pastor Murphy, what does it mean to be a believer, to be a Christian? The definition of a Christian and the idea of a Christian is, is, is so vague today that uh, I get a little bit concerned uh, about it myself. But if you go back to what the Bible teaches on this matter, I'm not talking what the church teaches or what the anybody says, what the Bible teaches. Clearly what God says to us is that man is broken, man is a sinner, man is alienated himself from God, uh, man has violated God's law, uh, violated God's principles. God in his love uh, came to rescue man. And part of that rescue package was the death of his son. So that his son might take our sins upon himself and die in our place and take the consequence of our sins. And that the son might also take his righteousness, which we, de- which we need, and close us in that righteousness. And all God says to us is very, very basic. We need to repent of our sins. We cannot be saved without repentance. Repentance fundamentally is a change of mind that results in a change of life. So we have to turn away from our sins and that is what, that, that's why Christ came to die for our sins. That's the first thing. There must be repentance. Secondly, we have to put our faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross. Nothing else will save us but faith and trust in the work that Christ did on the cross. The church cannot save. The church is the instrument that God uses to deliver the message of salvation. And after that person is saved, to nurture that person and build up that person. But the church cannot save. Putting your name on a church roster uh, will never save you. Repentance and faith towards God are the core conditions of being saved. So a person is a Christian when he repents of his sin and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is precisely what a believer is. Why do you think there's so much confusion on this topic? I think there's confusion because um, there are passages in Scripture that people use. For example, James says, faith without works is dead. There are people that hold on to that. But wait a minute, if you don't have faith, you don't have works, it's dead faith. But again, if you take the context of the passage that James is dealing with, James is dealing with something completely different. The passage that and James used an illustration, was not Abraham our father justified when he sacrificed his son, went to sacrifice his son. But again, that is in Genesis chapter 25. Abraham was justified in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and was counted into righteousness. Two different things altogether. James is talking about our justification before man. How do men know that we're really saved? Men know we're saved, not just by saying we're saved. They know it by our works, our good life. That's how they know, right? But we're saved 
by faith and trust in Jesus. So justification before man is what James is talking about. Justification before God is by faith and faith alone. But when you conflate these two things and confuse these two things together, it leads you to a wrong interpretation. For example, the Catholic Church says, let that man be anathema who says a man is saved by faith alone. So, in other words, they damn me to hell if I say a man is saved by faith alone. But that's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4 and 5. A man is saved by faith and faith alone. And that's because the, 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 that kind of teaching uh, is where a lot of the confusion uh, comes in. Uh, another illustration, Nathan, a lot of people believe that uh, there are some churches, I think the Church of Christ, you've got to be saved, uh, believe, and then you've got to be baptized. So if you're not baptized, you're not a true Christian. Again, confusion the whole matter. Completely confused. Baptism happens after a person is saved as an identification with the church and the death and burial of Jesus Christ. But baptism can't save. It's very clear. If baptism could save, for example, why would Paul say uh, he thanks God he did not uh, baptize in First Corinthians chapter 1 and 2? Uh, he did not baptize, save two, two families. I mean, Paul went preaching the gospel all over the world. So if you really believe that uh, baptism was necessary for salvation, can you imagine Paul saying, I thank God I didn't baptize you? And the reason why Paul said that, because you would think that you have some responsibility to Paul and your, your dedication to Paul. I want you to focus on Christ, not on Paul. Paul is just a human instrument. But things like that, the conflating uh, uh, baptism and uh, belief and uh, works and faith, these are that leads to a lot of these different types of errors. Speaking of confusion in today's religious world, here's a couple of messages from Facebook that a listener has sent us uh, advertising some meetings. This is a testimony. It says, I have an awesome testimony for you all. Last night, for the first time in my life, I saw Jesus Christ so real as a person. He appeared in my room. Jesus Christ just looked at me, and then he vanished away. Women, get ready. Jesus Christ is about to do something dramatic in your life. See you at the women's conference, and then has the name of this prophetess. And then another one, Jesus Christ appeared to me a couple of nights ago as real as a person. I saw him at the healing house. Ladies, Jesus Christ is going to do something in this women's conference to touch you, to heal you, and deliver you. God bless you. See you Saturday at 2 p.m. And again, the name of this prophetess. I call that clever marketing, quite frankly, right? You, you see, the, you see the, co the, the coincidence of two? We're going to have a ladies' conference. How many ladies come out? Well, I saw Jesus, and Jesus is going to do something marvelous. It is such fakery these days. And because these people claim to be prophets and apostles and stuff like that, I don't know, religious people and God's people don't seem to have any kind of discernment. They don't uh, say, well, where in church history, the long church, do we have things like this happening? And people making these kind of outlandish statements. It's not there, right? So you mean to tell me in the last period of church history, the age of the, 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 age of the dead church, quite frankly, that has gone away from long, that got God outside knocking to come back in, right? You mean to tell me that in this age you have all this revelation of Jesus? <laughs> I can't believe it. I don't believe it. That's man. a pretty proud statement. Yeah, I, I don't believe it whatsoever. And look at all the the corruption we have uh, in, in uh, a lot of these big mega church movements all over and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Look at churches accepting uh, buggery, accepting um, homosexuality, transgender. We are not in the church of revival. We are in the age of apostasy. 
And God is not going to display his power and his person in this age of apostasy. He's calling it, as a matter of fact, if you read Revelations chapter 2 and 3, seven times he says to the church, one word, repent, repent, repent. What the church needs is to repent before God and ask God for mercy to send revival. But all of this kind of thing, God, I can imagine God in heaven reading this kind of stuff and knowing exactly this is not true. And, and can't believe that his own people don't have the discernment to see that this is just clever marketing. The mere coincident of the the, the coincident with the uh, the ladies' meeting that she's had this vision at the same time, clever marketing. And I, I would have more wisdom than that when I was an unsafe person to see that that is bogus. And I don't know why God's people, because somebody who claimed to be some spiritual giant says something, they just gobble it up, believe it without any kind of reasoning or discernment whatsoever. In closing, you said that the church needs to repent. But isn't that what the world, the unsaved, the secular world needs to do? Why does the church need to repent, Pastor? Well, the world needs to repent. There's no question about that. But the church needs to repent because there's so much evil going on in the church. Um, For example, I've said this before and I'll repeat it again. You'll be surprised how many people in the modern church are addicted to pornography. Mm. It's one of the largest problems that the world, the church faces globally. We need to repent of that because these are things that are going wrong. Evil, it's wrong, it's affecting marriages, affecting relationships. That is a classic example of what we need to do in terms of repentance. Thank you very much for your teaching, Pastor. Be sure that you tune in next week. We have a very practical topic, something that's been around for a long time but is continuing to become more and more popular, the topic of astrology. If you know of someone who is involved in astrology, encourage them to tune in next week as we talk about this topic. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.